Bet you never thought you'd spend a bank holiday Monday watching Danish football. So once more, it's Lockdown Football. Will Downing with you alongside my fellow Lockdown commentators, Mark Rodden, Stefan Johnny, and Dimitra Zulai. It's just nice to have a bit of regular football back. Many nations have now returned. Portugal resumes this midweek, and we're joined later by the Portuguese-based journalist Tom Kundert about that. But... We've had football. It's been on TV. We've all been watching. So what have you been watching this weekend, Mark? Uh, obviously keeping a close eye on the Bundesliga. I watched Hertha beat Augsburg on Saturday. 10 points from 12 now for Hertha under uh, Bruno Labbadia. Fourth coach of the season. Seems they've uh, finally got it right. Making perhaps a late push for a European place. And uh, Jurgen Klinsmann, a distant memory at this stage. Mm. And did you watch the Polish Extra Class at the weekend? Yeah, I did uh, see a bit of the uh, Polish football. Heard a bit of uh, your commentary, Will, on your two games at the weekend. Unfortunately, not the best of matches, but uh, hopefully things will improve as the uh, players get back up to speed after the uh, long break. Well, I hope so. It'll be you in a few weeks. So there, I'm glad you were doing your homework. Stefan, what have you been watching? Would you believe I was watching Bundesliga, not the Polish league, uh, Will? I was watching uh, Bayer Leverkusen against Freiburg on Friday night. Well, we could have won 1-0 and Borussia uh, Dortmund against Paderborn, 6-1. Uh, what a game. I mean, the first half was uh, quite even and uh, there's much happening in the first half. Paderborn was defending and did quite well for 45 minutes. But unfortunately, uh, when the dead, uh, they, when they um, and Borussia Dortmund uh, broke the deadlock, uh, Togan Hazard after 54 minutes, uh, found the net and then three minutes later, uh, Jadon uh, Sancho uh, scored a second one for Dortmund. He was just a walkover and plenty of goals. And uh, yeah, Dortmund's an important win for them. And Bayern needed after the uh, massive loss against Bayern Munich uh, during the uh, during the week as well. And Demetra, among the many nations you've been watching this week, a very significant game back home among them, I'm sure. I would rather not talk about it. Okay, talk about everything else. So we lost the game. No, it's just like, yeah, the fact... Uh, is we lost. So uh, first of all, I just wanted to say that you aren't that locked down anymore because you did get to commentate on some games. <laughs> well, yeah. I, so, I mean, like the last few days have been great. So first of all, I'm doing this in my back garden, which I've had an ambition to do the last few weeks and the Wi-Fi wasn't strong enough. So I've got a long cable that's come out and it works. So it's great. And yeah, Polish football been assigned to that. So I got the call at the start of last week. So two games. Saturday was the 1-0 win. I'll actually start the review. Back underway with a bang in Poland. Leaders Legia Warsaw scored a vital 1-0 win at fellow giants like Poznan to maintain an eight-point lead at the top with 10 games to go over defending first-time champions Piask Lewica. The Baltic derby was 0-0 five minutes into the second half. By the end, it was Legia Gdansk 4 Arke Gdynia 3. But the other game that I'd done, which was immediately before that, was... Quite a sterile uh, 1-0 win for Jagiellonia Bawistok above Krakowia. And if only the Baltic derby, the, the Three Sisters derby, had actually been the game shown instead, then we'd have had an absolute glut. Because the 1-0 win for Legia Warsaw over Lech Poznan on Saturday, those were two teams that really went at each other 
pretty much on balance over the last 10 years the best two teams in Poland and it was a great spectacle and I think the fact that they knew that it was being watched by a much bigger audience than usual in more countries than usual unfortunately it was a pretty comical goal uh, horrible goalkeeping error by Mickey van der Hart knocked it off uh, his centre-back's back it bounced off the bar and then it was just tapped into the net it was a really good game but it was a 1-0 game, so hopefully we get a few more goals in future weeks. What else have you been watching this week, by the way? Well, I tried to follow K-League since we started it, and we had uh, an interview with Smart. Well, he's injured now, unfortunately, so he's out for three weeks, and his team lost at home. Now, it was a well, very lucky goal uh, for the opponents. They just got it in the 89th minute, and generally it was pretty much a game that you could have commentated on instead of the Polish game uh, that ended 1-0. But also, you know, I just still try you know, to get some more insight into the leaders, Chambuk and Olsan, because they are different teams. They're playing differently. And it's interesting to see those differences and understand how each of them tries to play because they were title favourites before the season and nothing changes after the four rounds. They are at the top and it's interesting to see how it shapes up in that league that started almost a month ago. Well, it was another big weekend of goals in the Bundesliga. Leaders Bayern Munich thumped Fortuna Dusseldorf 5-0. Borussia Dortmund hit six at Paderborn, all of those in the second half. Jaden Sancho with a hat-trick. He's the youngest player in Bundesliga history to hit 30 goals. And Gladbach beat Union Berlin 4-1. Bayern are seven points clear of Dortmund at the top and some of the Dortmund goal celebrations included tributes to George Floyd whose death in the US has caused nationwide protests there and demonstration in other countries also, Mark. Four players showed solidarity with protesters in the United States. Jaden Sancho and Ashraf Hakimi after uh, scoring goals for Dortmund. Marcus Thuram uh, son of the great French defender Lillian after scoring for Gladbach and Schalke midfielder Weston McKenney, who uh, wore an armband with Justice for George written on it. An important show of support, I think. Jaden Sancho with a T-shirt saying Justice for George Floyd. Uh, all of them suggesting that what's going on right now can't stand and that we all have to take a stand against racism. That's something that uh, Gladbach coach Marco Rose indicated uh, he said the whole squad were behind uh, Marcus Thuram for taking a knee after his goal at the weekend those players uh, might be investigated for whether they breached protocols but even the uh, German Football Federation president uh, Fritz Keller came out on Monday and said you know the victims of uh, racism need all of us to show solidarity he said he was proud of the players can completely understand the actions and that nobody can be indifferent to what's uh, going on and what has happened in the United States in the uh, past couple of weeks. What did the two of you make of that as well? Well, that's the right thing to do, what the players did, and I just hope more players will join them. And also it is important for famous white players in America in different sports to make their stand and... uh, say things that have been said by so many others across the country. And try not to do it in a David Guetta fashion, I guess. Uh, What was your take on that, Stefan? Yeah, I think, you know, the 21st century is still like uh, happening. It's it's, it's quite, you know, unbelievable. And uh, I'm I'm pleased that the players 
you know, Mark, you know, that event, you know, in different ways like Turam and, and Sancho, for example, in the Bundesliga. But yeah, as Mitro said, that, you know, it should be done, you know, across the ball by, I guess, you know, response. And uh, this is not acceptable, you know, often on the pitch. And, um, you know, I have no words, really. It's 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 a disgrace. And uh, hopefully we won't see that again. But unfortunately, it's not the case. We can see in different leagues. Uh, and, and Mariga in Portugal, uh, we, we, you know, he was fond, you know, for for supporters, you know, abusing him verbally and racism, and uh, and you know, had to leave the pitch, you know, in Portugal, and uh, we don't want to see that on the pitch. Obviously, it's it's not acceptable, and uh, and I really hope that things will change. We can only hope, and uh, yeah, that's what I can say really about this, uh, that, that that topic, you know. But it's really really sad. Well, I mean, Liverpool, we saw a photo that was released of all of their players taking a knee around the centre circle at Anfield on Bank Holiday Monday. And that's what Colin Kaepernick had done in the NFL with the 49ers. And then at the end of the season, despite being one of the best quarterbacks of the season, he ends up being cut and he hasn't played since, which sort of shows a little bit of endemic racism in the NFL, which I know many of us are fans are, but surely people would have preferred that than what's happened in the United States over the past week or so. What is happening just confirms and Colin was right. Yeah, and Kopernik, you know, again, you know, was uh, was ostracized and was punished uh, by the NFL itself. You know why? Which is unbelievable. And they should have been very supportive of Kopernik. And you can see that across the board. And I really hope football like, will be uh, supportive. But we've seen, you know, it was not really the case by FIFA, UEFA, not having, uh, taking, you know, a hard line on the people abusing players on the pitch. We've seen it many times, you know, even this season. Players trying to leave the pitch and... Uh, uh, again, you know, it's, uh, it's a wider issue uh, in society and education, unfortunately. Now, in the Faroe Islands, which we touched on a few weeks ago, HB won the Torship and Derby, beating B36-4-2. They've won all five games this season. In Ukraine, Shakhtar Donetsk beat Dynamo Kyiv. 3-1 to go 16 points clear. After our Hooses video wall, Michelin debuted their drive-in football in Denmark against Horsens and were beaten 1-0 on Bank Holiday Monday. They're nine points clear still of FC Copenhagen with the playoffs to come. And in the women's Bundesliga, Claire O'Reardon, who was our guest on our last show, her MSV Duisburg won 2-0 at Bayer Leverkusen to ease relegation worries in the Frauen Bundesliga. But Diane Caldwell's SC Sand lost at Frankfurt. And there was a red card for Amber Barrett in FC Clones 4-0 loss at Leaders Wolfsburg. I tweeted about that at the weekend and within a minute it had been liked by Amber. Sorry, Amber. We'd love to have you on the programme though, Diane as well. Uh, Wolfsburg are eight points clear of Bayern Munich in second. That's the same 1-2 as last season. And there was a strange bit of curfew breaking in France, Stefan, an unofficial players tournament. What happened there? Yeah, what a what a story. Uh, just made the headline recently in France. Gaëtan Laborde, uh, one of the uh, Montpellier striker. Uh, was involved in the wild or improvised tournament in Montmarsan. It's about you know two hours drive from Bordeaux, south of Bordeaux, and he was doing his confinement in Montmarsan. The tournament took place, and he was involved uh, with uh, Louis Diony from Saint Etienne. Two players were confined in Montmarsan. The police uh, turned up and realized that there was two uh, professional footballers, you know, playing just with you know uh, people you know, on the pitch, and uh, unfortunately for uh, uh, get on board. Um, the media in France, you know, uh, started to talk about it, and he had to apologize. And but I want to remind you that 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 tournament took place on the 23rd of May, 
So it took about a few days and get on board this mea culpa and apologize on Instagram and said that was not acceptable and he won't do it again. He lost football, lost playing, he was missing it badly, but made the wrong call, wrong choice at the right at the wrong time and uh, and I had to apologize to everyone. I see as well that Vasco da Gama, the major club in Brazil, have announced that 16 of their players have tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, they're based in Rio. They said the positive results came after tests were conducted on about 250 people. Atletico Mineiro and Cruzeiro have also said that a player in each squad have tested positive. Ecuadorian midfielder Juan Cazares for Atletico Mineiro. And for Cruzeiro, it's their forward Vinicius Popo. Um... That massive game, like the big two, I guess, in Ukraine, Dynamo Kiev, who are your side. And actually, as a commentator, you're actually really well known in Ukraine for being a Dynamo Kiev fan, whereas over here, club loyalties would be shielded a little bit. So there's a little bit of a, I guess, a culture difference between here and there. No, I think it's the same everywhere. It's just like I started following them and watching them long before I became a journalist. And also, I don't commentate on Ukrainian league. I've only done one game in my life, and they didn't involve either. So I commentated on Dynamo Kiev in the Champions League, of course, and uh, different European competitions, but that's just about it. I did a few national team games, and uh, that's it. I don't know. You can't really hide it. That's who you are. And also, I can tell you that if you support a club, it doesn't mean that you have to praise them all the time. It doesn't mean that you only can say good things about them and bad things about their opponents because right now the club is a mess. Well, it's been a mess for years. I've been saying that for years as well. And that's kind of helped Shakhtar win as many titles as they have done then because they've largely dominated over the last decade. No, actually, I was ready to (laughs) admit that they won the title on the day uh, a new contract uh, was offered to the then manager of Dynamo Kiev. And it was before the season started. It was obvious. So now uh, the only thing that Dynamo Kiev can fight for is a second place and a chance to get into the playoffs of the Champions League. But I just don't see why. I don't see how it would help quite a country. I think uh, if they don't get that second place, maybe that could be a reason to act. But also, I, I wouldn't expect that. So what needs to be done then? at Dinamo in order for things to be the way they should be? We don't have two hours now okay. because we still have to talk about Portuguese football that is coming back. Well, well, I have two uh, more news for you. Um, no! It's yeah, good. Yeah, no, 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 no. There's a good one. A good, two good ones. I mean, one is about, you know, Neymar's cousin. He signed for the FC Lyon. It's a club in Lyon in the fifth year of French football. <laughs> He's a pure producer of Santos and uh, he just signed today. There you go. And the other one is a big one. It's, uh, you know, it's been on the French news and the French media for a while. Adil Aushish, we saw him, you know, for fans with under 17 in Dublin, if you remember last year. He's an apprentice, still has an apprentice contract with PAG and uh, his agent, you know, is trying to get, you know, the best club and the best deal for him. And Arsenal's on, you know, he's on the card and apparently what comes out is like Aushish or his agent looking for a lot of money like 4 million on uh, silent fees. Uh, so it's a huge package, you know, for uh, Adil Oshish. I don't know if Arsenal can afford it, but uh, he's only 17. And uh, Saint-Etienne as well, he, he went today to Saint-Etienne 
and a discussion with Claude Puel and uh, and Saint Etienne's representative. And clearly, Saint Etienne is on, you know could be as well the next destination for Aushish, but really attracting you know a lot of clubs and really a promising player. We've seen in Dublin with the French team. His attitude on the pitch is like, quite unbelievable, like you know. And as I said, like I was talking to one of the French uh, delegates after one of the game, I think it was against Sweden, and he was telling me that uh, Aushish as a striker runs an average of 12 kilometers a game, which is pretty unbelievable for a striker. He was definitely one of the players of the tournament. I mean, he scored against England, got the hat-trick against Sweden, scored against the Netherlands. He ultimately got nine goals in five games because he then got four in the quarterfinal against the Czech Republic. He was fantastic. Now his attitude is spot on and uh, what I've been told, and uh, he's willing to walk, willing to listen to his coaches and uh, he's very determined as a kid. He's only 17. We have to rem- remember that. And uh, the love clubs, you know, after I was shooting. And again, for PAG, it's another problem. Another young player who probably will leave the club uh, from the academy and going to uh, well, maybe a League One like club or maybe you know, abroad. And uh, we've seen so many, so many kids from PAG moving, you know, especially in Germany, in the Bundesliga. And it seems they can return, you know, the, uh, the young players for, well, various reasons. One is obvious, very difficult to break into the first team. And maybe uh, Tuchel doesn't believe in Aushish. I, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's been like that for the last, you know, couple of years. So what sort of jump up? How many players tend to get from the underage French setup to the national team? It's, it's very rare. Like, I mean, uh, the only one we can, I can think of is really Kylian Mbappé. But, you know, Kylian Mbappé was, was pretty spectacular moving, you know, at 18, you know, to the French team and win the World Cup uh, in 2018. So it's a very rare case. But for Aushish, I think he's not the same profile because uh, he didn't get a chance, you know, to play for the first team. But, you know, equally, if Aushish was playing for uh, Monaco or for Bordeaux, not a club like PSG, presumably he would have had a chance, you know, to play for the first team, which he did with PSG. He played against Metz play, you know, his first, you know, professional game this season. To get, you know, game time at PSG is very difficult for a young player. I guess, you know, playing for a different club, I definitely think, you know, he would have to play more games, you know, this season. Because he, he clearly, like, had the potential to play in League One. Now, you know, to have the potential and fulfill it and play regularly is down to the coach, but obviously what you do on the pitch. He's been included this season with the professional team, Aushish, but uh, again, when you're competing against Neymar, Kylian Mbappé, Cavani... Icardi, I mean, he's only 17, so I mean, you can ask, you know, so much from a young player, but he has a potential. I mean, Mbappe is a different standard, but if you look in the Bundesliga four years and years, Belgium and the Netherlands that we've worked on for a long time, like I noticed in Poland as well now, each side has to have at least one under 21 in their starting 11. In terms of the talent coming through in France, what happens? There's a brilliant assembly line in all the countries I've mentioned, but in France, it doesn't feel as if younger players are given the same opportunity. I did agree with that, Will. I think uh, we, we still have, you know, the same number of players coming through. But unfortunately, as PAG, they don't, you know, they don't play for the first team. Or maybe one or two, like really, like we'll see Moussa Diaby, for example, or Nkuku. They have the chances, but then see that they want to play regularly. And seemingly, PAG doesn't give that, you know, that uh, game time they require. So they, they have to leave. But for PAG, it's good business. You can't forget about that because they're seeing those players, you know, remarkably well for you know a good fee and uh, so it's a I would call that you know a secondary market for PSG to make money uh, going back to the main question yes I mean there's a lot of still, still long young players coming through uh, for the French uh, 
for the French clubs. But uh, you can see, like, uh, I think it was a statistic came out maybe two or three weeks ago. Brazil and France, so the, the, the two countries are exporting the most players abroad, especially in England. Not in change because the model in France is purely based on producing young players. And they have to rely on it to, you know, for the clubs, you know, to make money and to, to generate revenue for, for the academy, to reinvest into the club. And that's the only way out for the French, uh, for French football, even though they're going to have, you know, with MediaPro coming to the, uh, the loop, the uh, new uh, TV right holder injecting, I think, one billion and a few millions on top of it every season. That could change, you know, a few things for French clubs. But the grassroots football at, and the youth production in uh, French football, it's really the DNA of, uh, of France. So action resumes in Portugal this midweek with Porto top of the table by a point from Benfica away at Famalicão. Benfica are at home on Thursday night against Tondela, who are down in 14th of the 18. And Sporting of Lisbon, who are currently lying in fourth spot, they are away at Vitoria Guimarães. And all of those three games will be live on free sports with a delayed showing on Premier Sports midweek. And Tom Kundert, who's based in Lisbon and who's covered Portuguese football for very many years for Portugal and who's a published author on the topic as well. He's with us now. How are things going there right now, Tom? Uh, yeah, things are going pretty well in Portugal. You know, we were all very worried when we saw what was going on in Spain. Uh, you know, terrible images there, from the, especially from Madrid and Portugal just being next door. Everyone is very worried. But the authorities, they took immediate action. They decided to you know shut schools uh, lock everything down uh, the whole the whole population to be fair uh, were very understanding and very much behind uh, the government action and so there was uh, you know a lot of discipline I was quite surprised to be honest and how well disciplined the, the general public were and uh, thankfully that seems to have uh, you know uh, paid its dividends because Portugal hasn't been affected like Spain was uh, you know it's not the you know, we've obviously had problems. There's been, I think, about 1,500 deaths overall, which is, uh, you know, obviously just one death is a, it's a terrible thing. People dying before their time. But, uh, you know, considering what could have happened and what's happened in other countries, uh, it's not too bad. And things starting now to get back to some kind of normality. How has Portugal managed to avoid the worst of the pandemic so far from what we can see? when you know the pandemic started and that was really uh, getting serious there and you know some horrific numbers and the images we saw from hospitals everyone here was getting very worried but i think uh, you know to be fair the portuguese authorities they did a very good job lockdown early you know sh- uh, schools were shut very early i think people also were they respected the guidelines really because they were just you know the, the portuguese health system is probably isn't the best in europe we all know that and so everyone was just, uh, you know, very afraid that it would get overwhelmed. And so luckily, uh, you know, things have been managed to, they've kept a lid on it and things have been pretty much under control. So it's taken three months for football to resume while more important matters have been dealt with. Uh, the last games were played the 8th of March and we're now 10 games to go. Porto one point clear of Benfica and we've got a real title race on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's, just, it's a real shame, you know, this uh, this season has been curtailed the way it has or it's been kind of split in half the way it has because it was shaping up to be such a an exciting championship race. Uh, you know, well, it's, and hopefully it still will be, of course. It's going to be very different without any fans in the stadiums. But, uh, you know, like you said, it's really uh, got, got everything to be an epic battle, especially if we look at 
the fact that the final day of the season, if it does go to the final day of the season, we've got a, you know an amazing program with uh, Benfica hosting Sporting and Porto going to Braga. So you know two key games. Those are the massive games anyway. But imagine if uh, you know the titles hinging on those results. It's really it's really going to be quite something. And was there a bit of disappointment within football that the interruption came? It obviously had to, but it looks as if there'd been really good momentum in the season, which has obviously been interrupted for now. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, people, you know, obviously there was disappointment. Portugal is a soccer-mad country and, you know, in some, some ways just uh, the whole society seems to revolve around football in, in, in so many ways. So there was obviously, you know, a big disappointment and you can see there's been a real big void these these last few months. But, you know, people have... Uh, They've been intelligent about it. They realise, you know, there are more important things at stake. Uh, they just hope that perhaps, you know, these last couple of months of the season will make up for it in terms of, you know, we've we've been starved of football for two or three months, haven't we? But maybe, uh, you know, we'll get some, you know, real bonanza football these last few weeks. And there's still some restrictions in place because you were hoping to see Benfica on Thursday night, but there are still numbers being limited and yeah, no, no luck for you, unfortunately. No, that's right. Yeah, the journalists, you know, I thought that I, I I go to every Benfica game at home, every sporting game at home. It's just you know, very easy for me logistically, but quite near my house. They're only uh, allowing journalists from national media outlets and uh, my website does not count as a national media outlet. Uh, it's as an international one. So unfortunately, I'll have to miss out to uh, watch it on TV like everybody else. And just from your point of view, is it going to be like that for a few weeks or or longer? Uh, possibly. I'll just have to wait and see. So I got a message from Sporting the other day and they said we could uh, apply normally, although we normally send two journalists. But in, in that case, they said we could only send each you know, media outlet could only send one. So, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, that won't change. But, uh, well, obviously, they're trying to limit the amount of people in the actual stadium and, you know, involved just to try and minimise the risks of a pandemic and any chance of contagion. And uh, I read that I think they were trying to limit it to 150 people or between 150 and 200 people. That's everyone, you know, teams, uh, coaches, journalists, uh, cameramen, uh, radio commentators, everything. They said they were trying to keep that number as low as possible. So, you know, fair enough. Uh, just have to accept it from my point of view. And uh, I'll be listening to Mark uh, probably, possibly, uh, <laughs> uh, on the commentary. Uh, Tom, uh, before the game at Estadio do Dragão, Porto Benfica, Benfica had a seven-point advantage. Even after losing, there was still four. But then... A defeat against Braga, a draw against Moreirense, a, a draw against uh, Setubal. They were knocked out of the Europa League. So what do you think happened? Because even after watching all those games, I still have no scientific explanation of that. And do you think that this break could actually help Benfica and Brundelage uh, to, to fight for the title being refreshed mentally, first of all? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good question because... Uh, like I'm sure you know, Benfica under Bruno Lage, uh, so he's been there now about a year and two or three months, but because of this break, he's basically been their coach for about a year, year and a little bit. And he's just got this incredible record, especially in the league, where, you know, his first full year in charge, the only games they lost were actually to Porto. Uh, and they just weren't all, you know, game after game after game. They, they actually themselves did an incredible comeback last season when they were, they themselves were seven points behind managed to claw it back, ended up winning the league. This season, 
Uh, at the halfway stage, like you said, Benfica was seven points clear and their points gap was more at the halfway stage uh, than they were behind last season. I think it was five or six points last season. And so uh, if, uh, you know, it's everyone just thought, OK, that's it, Benfica champions, you know, game over pretty much. And like you said, I actually made a note of it here, uh, Benfica, before lockdown, their last eight results were lost, drew, lost, lost, won, drew, 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 you know, and that for Benfica is absolutely disastrous for them. So I think you're absolutely right. You know, the chance to, uh, you know, stop, get a mental kind of refresh, reset, uh, was definitely, you would think that's in Benfica's advantage. Actually, even if they don't manage to claw it back, Porto now top of the league by one point, it would be the first time ever that a club has recuperated a seven-point lead uh, to win the league, or put it another way, that a club has thrown away a seven-point lead not to win the league. So, yeah, it's a very big deal, and I'm sure Benfica, in some ways, they will be quite pleased that, uh, you know, the, this break happened when it did. As, as for why it happened, yeah, good question again. I think, to be fair, Benfica, they had been struggling even before they hit this very rocky set of results. They'd been winning games, as usual, under Bruno Lage, but they'd been winning games very unconvincingly and quite luckily in one or two cases. And uh, there seemed to be a kind of collective uh, loss of form. One or two key players, for instance, I think in defence, Grimaldo, uh, left-back, fantastic going forward always, but a little bit shaky defensively. And, and he was just, he was a bit of a liability, to be honest, sometimes uh, at left-back. And, and Ferro also, the other left, the centre-back, who's a, you know, they've got Ruben Diaz and Ferro, is very good centre-back partnership, arguably one of the best in Portugal normally. But Ferro, his form just, fell off a cliff you know he was making mistake after mistake after mistake and that really was hurting Benfica and so you know if those two can get back to their usual forms they're actually two of Benfica's probably two of their best players and so if they can get themselves back to, to normal form there's no doubt about it this break would have been very beneficial to Benfica. We've got this managerial sensation Ruben Amorim uh, <laughs> and after doing so well at Braga he went to Sporting. Is that madhouse also known as Sporting Football Club, is good for him now. And what is happening with Sporting again? Well, I don't want to kind of monopolise this and make this into a five-hour programme because I think that's what we need to try and discuss, uh, you know, what's going on at Sporting. It's Like you said, a madhouse is uh, it's, it's pretty much hit the nail on the head. It's just everything which has gone wrong in that club or which could have gone wrong in that club over the last four or five years has gone wrong. And so, uh, you know, obviously the real, I suppose you could say, uh, when the club hit rock bottom was in the summer of 2018, when there was that attack at the, the club's training ground by 50 of its own ultras. And they ended up, uh, you know, attacking the players and that really uh, precipitated the, the fall of the president who was implicated in, you know, in some people's eyes in the attack. He was actually just this week completely exonerated from that. So that's also caused a lot of commotion because uh, it seems like he wants to make a comeback. But that attack, obviously, the players, a lot of the players unilaterally rescinded their contract. Uh, some of them, you know, most of the high-profile players, Rui Patricio, Gelson Martins, William Carvalho, uh, even Bruno Fernandes, although Bruno Fernandes actually changed his mind. A lot of those players left the club. And so it just left them in a complete state of flux last season. Sporting, actually, if you look at it coldly, considering that backdrop, didn't have such a bad season. They won both domestic cups, 
this season uh, they seem to on the back of that we thought maybe they would kind of you know start building up a bit of a head of steam get a little bit closer to Benfica and Porto but started off very poorly the, the coach was sacked perhaps a little bit precipitously or a little bit unfairly you know considering how well he'd done the previous season in such difficult circumstances but Sporting have just been terrible in the league, you know, abject performances really well. They just they just don't look like a team. Like you said, uh, Ruben, they made this big move then, which of course for Sporting, they couldn't make a big move without making it uh, some kind, in some way sensational. And it was poaching Ruben Averine from Braga, who just had an amazing record. He's only been a manager for about a couple of months at Braga, but just won... I don't know the exact record, but I think he won 12 out of 13 matches, something like that, including victories over Sporting twice, over Porto, over Benfica. So you know, he just had an incredible impact. Sporting have poached him, but they did it at a very, very high price, 10 million euros, which for Portuguese club to pay 10, I think almost for any club to pay 10 million euros to another club for a coach, is, you know, it's almost unheard of. In Portugal, where any team buys a, a player for 10 million uh, it's, it's incredible even the big clubs and so yeah a lot of pressure and of course they took him from Braga and Braga and, and Sporting they're fighting for that third spot which will give automatic entry to the Europa League and so you know fairly important position there obviously in terms of the next season of course this is all in a little bit of state of flux because of the, the pandemic and the schedules and everything but uh, in terms of making preparations for next season, uh, it obviously would be advantageous to finish third rather than fourth. And uh, so it's going to be interesting now. There's four points uh, separating Sporting from Braga. And it's going to be interesting if uh, Amarine can, uh, you know, have the same kind of impact. I can't really see him having the same same kind of impact because Braga were already a good team when he took over. Sporting aren't a good team. And he'll have to, but if he can get them sorted out, you know, in terms of playing staff, there's probably not too much between the two teams, but I think it might be asking a bit much to make up that four-point gap. Could I ask about Benfica as well, Tom? As you mentioned, Bruno Lage had such a big impact. I think it was 18 wins out of 19 to finish the season last year. You can't say a whole lot has gone wrong at the same time because they've still won a huge number of games, but how much of an impact did João Felix leaving have? And the flip side of that seems to be the players that they've brought in to replace him, the likes of Raul de Tomas and Caio, perhaps. They've already left in the winter and certainly weren't a hit in Lisbon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. You know, maybe we didn't realise what an important piece Joao Félix was, really, in that Benfica team. He really did have a, a fantastic few months. You know, Bruno Lage said he's made it quite... Uh, you know, a special feature of his taking over Benfica. He said, one of the first things I decided when I took over Benfica was I'm going to get the kid playing. And he was talking about Joao Felix, you know, this golden boy. And boy, did he get him playing. He was absolutely fantastic. You know, Atletico Madrid spent £126 million uh, euros to take him from Benfica after he hadn't even had a whole full season. So that's quite remarkable. It kind of shows you what an impact he had and how he was seen even from abroad. Having said that, uh, again, I don't, I think you can't just say, okay, Joao Felix uh, left Benfica fell apart. It surely can't be that simple. I think, uh, for instance, Seferovic, the Swiss striker, he's been kind of up and down since he's been at Benfica, most, mostly down. The one exception was last season when something just clicked 
and, uh, and he was brilliant, which is <laughs> quite surprising for, uh, for Harris Safarovic. I've got nothing against him, but when he first came to Portugal, you know, most people thought, okay, this is pretty average striker, nothing special, perhaps a bit lucky to be in a club as big as Benfica last season, especially when Joao Felix and him uh, were playing together. He was just transformed. He looked like a world beater. He thought, I think scored 25, 30 goals in the season. You know, he was superb. This season, it's uh, back to the old Seferovic. Uh, you know, he looks quite ponderous, quite clumsy. Doesn't look like the kind of striker who really thrives in a technical league like the Portuguese one. I mentioned earlier, talking to Dimitri, uh, some of their key players have really, you know, their form uh, collectively. You know, I suppose when a team collectively isn't working, it, it affects the individuals as well, doesn't it? And some of them... Uh, principally in the defence, uh, Ferro and and uh, Grimaldo are really struggling. Perhaps also another factor you can throw in there is uh, Gabriel, the Brazilian midfielder. Again, he's another player who Bruno Lage really transformed, uh, you know, really got the best out of him. He looked like a bit of a flop. He was quite expensive by Portuguese standards. He cost about £8 million. Uh, Bruno Lage got hold of him and he really turned him in, into one of their key players. He was superb again last season. This is also perhaps another reason why uh, Benfica may benefit from this break because Gabriel, for him, it wasn't a question of loss of form. Uh, he was injured. He had quite an unusual injury, uh, an eye injury. I'm not sure if it necessitated an operation or some, it seemed quite serious at one stage. There was even some question marks about whether it might even end his career. But fortunately, that hasn't happened and he seems to have recovered and he seems to be ready to play now. So if he's back and he's in good form, that would be a big boost for Benfica. And for Porto, what's gone right? Because they had so many departures in the summer. Herrera, Brahimi, Eder Militao, without really bringing any big names in. They missed out on the Champions League, but it seems that they've got things together again since. Even looking at the scorers, I think their top scorer has eight league goals. So it seems to be a real team effort from them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think... Sergio Conceição has really done a bit of a, a miraculous job there, really, because, like you said, they've, they've had to sell their best players. You know, it's normal in Portugal for the big clubs, even the big clubs have to sell their players, but they've been in real trouble. You know, they were in trouble in terms of financial fair play, so they really had to have a bit of a fire sale. And uh, when Sergio Conceição went there the first season, he really made wine from water. You know, he turned a pretty average team into champions of Portugal. And even last season competed very strongly at the end. Like I said, they were uh, they were actually looking odds on to, to win the championship again for most of the season until Bruno Lage came and turned things around at Benfica. This season, same thing really. You know, they haven't really improved their team at all in terms of personnel. Uh, quite the opposite. But uh, Sergio Conceição is really all about, you know, heart and physicality even and getting the getting the most out of his players from a mental point of view. He's get, he actually gets some criticism from Porto fans that the more technical uh, players seem to really find it quite difficult to, to make their mark. And, uh, and Sergio Conceição, for instance, Oliver Torres, who was a uh, you know, big favourite at Porto, uh, Conceição didn't really give him a... They just, just didn't fancy him at all. Ended up, uh, he ended up being sold. Uh, even players like Sergio Oliveira... Back in favour now, but uh, you know, people say he he should be one of the first players on the one of the first names on the team sheet. Doesn't really seem to fit the Conceição mould because if you, as I'm sure you know, you know most of Conceição's players and most of his tactical setup is really all about producing a very physically powerful 
team, uh, very direct. That's how they beat Benfica, really, the last couple of times. A bit more brawn than than guile, I would say. But, you know, fair play to him because with, with those sort of players really looking at their squad uh, the last two or three seasons compared to Benfica's squad, they probably could argue perhaps don't have the right to, uh, you know, to go toe-to-toe with Benfica, but they have been doing that and they've won one championship last season, narrowly lost to Benfica. This one seems to, you know, it's too close to call as well. Uh, Moussa Marega from uh, Mali was born in France basically and played for Porto one of the striker who joined Porto for Maritimo in 2015 and uh, he scored 22 goals two seasons ago and 11 last season and only 6 what, what happened exactly from uh, Moussa Marega he was quite prolific and but it seems this season he's not doing as well yeah yeah not too bad yeah he's an interesting player um, uh, Moussa Marega because uh, when he first, he, he kind of first came to prominence in Portugal at uh, Maritimo, he did very well there, then went to Vitoria Guimarães, which was a step up, uh, you know, a bigger club, uh, did very well there. Porto bought him, uh, I think, first of all, on loan, if I'm right, uh, or they might have bought him. But, uh, and his first six months there, this is before Sergio Conceição, was an absolute disaster. Uh, he was. He became a bit of a butt of jokes because I think he scored one goal. And if I was talking earlier about Teferovic looking at times a bit clumsy and cumbersome, well, Musa Morega, you could say in some ways, is the definition of that. But uh, Sergio Conceição came in and he was absolutely transformed. And like I was just mentioning there to Mark, Sergio Conceição likes big, physical, strong players. And that is exactly what uh, Musa Morega is. And he was superb. He was superb that one season you mentioned, the first season, uh, you know, he was just like a force of nature, really strong. Again, not the most technically gifted striker, but when you've got that strength and that ability just to boss really the, uh, you know, the opposition defence, also very flexible player. As he played through the middle sometimes, but he was very happy to work the channels going wide. And so, you know, he gave Porto good options there. And he, he, was, he was a perfect fit for Sergio Conceição. But, and he also, it's amazing also what confidence does. You know, he just, some of his finishes were superb. They were even quite subtle, some of his finishes. And people looking at him and they said, wow, is this the same Musa Morega we've been seeing, you know, at Maritimo and even Gimarães when, and, and those six horrible months at Porto when he looked like, you know, he, he didn't even deserve to be in, the, in that division, let alone Porto. What's happened since? Uh, I think maybe... I'd say he, he overperformed that season. Everything he touched turned to gold. Uh, this season, say, perhaps regressed to the mean a little bit because I don't think he is, overall, I don't think he's a top-class striker. He's a good striker, you know. If, if a coach knows how to get the best out of him, like Sergio Conceição does, he can be a, you know, a big asset to any side. But I wouldn't call him, you know, really top-class striker. I very much doubt that he'd do very well in the very top leagues in Portugal. Uh, I think maybe he's lost a bit of confidence. There was also this season, of course, unfortunately, that very quite shocking incident where he was racially abused at Victoria de Guimarães, his former club, and he refused to play on, you know, stormed off the pitch. That made headlines all around the world. Uh, unfortunately, not showing Portuguese football in a very good light. But, uh, you know, that really was a disgraceful afternoon. He, he is quite volatile temperamentally as well. Even at Guimarães, uh, I think once or twice he stormed out of training or something. And uh, he is, you know, he's quite a volatile character. And uh, I think maybe as one of these players, when everything goes well, uh, you know, when his confidence is high, uh, you know, he can be a real weapon when it, everything isn't perfect. He's kind of 
perhaps not the best of strikers. But yeah, I think he's in the right team. Again, it's it's almost like we're going to have a mini season now, isn't it? These next ten matches. And so if he's up up and firing, he might actually. There's been quite a lot of talk that season. You just mentioned when he was just scoring goal after goal that he would get a move. Uh, I think West Ham were were interested at one time. So you know, perhaps he's got a market. And if he, you know, if he really manages to maybe score five or six goals and make a bit of a splash at the end of the season, he may think that he can earn himself a move abroad, especially as Porto, again, seem to be in a little bit of a hole financially. And the word is that they're going to be selling players in the summer. Yeah, because two years ago, um, Mariga was linked to Marseille. They were looking for a striker and he was doing so well. And there was a lot of yeah. you know, speculation that he was going to leave during the, uh, uh, the yeah. winter break, but uh, stay uh, at Porto. But... Uh, just another question about Sergio Conceição because you put a point that he's a, he's a leader like we know that and uh, he's a kind of an impact manager on the players and uh, because he, when he was in France he, he coached none for a year for one season and they, they did really well and uh, the, the players you know bought into him and but you know in, in a way as well do you think he has shown some a bit of limitation tactically technically as a coach you know because I thought you know from Nantes you went to Porto I was expecting a little bit more from uh, Sergio Conceição yeah, maybe, maybe. That's a fair question, I think. This is a this bit of a moot point. Some people say that he is limited tactically. He Others say, uh, because Porto, they don't show much variation in the way they play, but much kind of evolution since uh, Sergio Conceição is there. But other people, they point out probably fairly that with the players he's got, this is nothing like the Porto of even five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago when they always had a top-class side who could compete in the Champions League. This has got absolutely nothing to do with that Porto. Other people think he, he does actually show a bit of tactical variation. I remember he did do some interesting things. For instance, Miguel Layun, I always remember, uh, you know, very good Mexican right back. He actually did some good tactical innovations with him playing in, in central midfield in a few games, which, you know, played out well. And he does like to mix things up in games, although the whole uh, kind of ethos of his team doesn't really change. You know, it's all about kind of in your face, you know, physicality. Also, people who I'm a big fan of Sergio Conceição myself, and if you look at him, almost every club he's been to, he's done well. He's done his results have been positive. He's never really had a really top class squad to work with. So you can say, well, you know, maybe that's because the people who are really in the know, you know, you really choose carefully. They coach, they don't trust him with, uh, you know, giving him a, a top class squad. You could argue that you know maybe it's he's not that tactically innovative or he hasn't really tried out different kind of systems or a kind of more subtle way of playing because he just hasn't had the players at his disposal so a bit of a moot point of course I'd be quite interested just uh, now I've got you to, to know how that was viewed his decision to leave Nantes to when he came to Porto because I know that caused quite a bit of controversy uh, in France yeah, yeah. yeah. Was he said apparently for personal reason uh, with yeah. his wife you know that's what he said basically and yeah. there was an agreement like uh, with uh, Vladimir Kita, the uh, chairman of the club and uh, but mm. that that was it like but it was a bit of a surprise because he'd done so well yeah it's interesting I suppose of course he's, uh, he was a big player at Porto of course and uh, you know a big hero there so I suppose in some ways it was a, a bit of a maybe too good an opportunity to turn down. But I think even here in Portugal, it left a little bit of a sour taste the way that whole thing happened because Nantes have kind of uh, given him this big break. It done so well there. And 
from what it seemed, everyone in Nantes was expecting him to, you know, to stay there at least for another season. But uh, I suppose that's the way of modern football, isn't it? When a, yeah. a big chance comes up like that, uh, you've got to grab it. I just wanted to say a few things about Moussa because they did a few games this season when Porto played. And Morega is a perfect example of a selfless striker. He works for the team. He, he can be on the right, he can be on the left. Even though he's big, and you'd expect him to be in the box, but he works all those flanks. He he assists. He does the same for the national team, where you can consider him well to be one of the biggest stars. He still does that. He is absolutely tireless. He's selfless, and also yeah, he scored six. But if you look at Dikinius Aris, seven goals. Zeluish, seven goals. Alex Dallas is the best scorer for Porto with eight, but he takes penalties. So it's just a general situation for the team this season. There is no outstanding goal scorer. So for me, Marega probably in a way, can be a symbol of this particular Porto side sometimes because they had to get some very difficult results, uh, especially away from home, and they did it. That's true. And of course, he scored in some very big matches. Uh, he scored against Benfica, of course, didn't he, in the win. The winner they started to lose, if I remember rightly. I was at that match uh, earlier this season. I think he scored in that one. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that's fair enough to say he symbolises them. And of course, like I said, he's... He's an interesting player because that season where everything just clicked uh, and people said, OK, this is the kind of player who maybe can thrive in Portugal, but he won't do anything anywhere else. He was excellent in the Champions League. He was really good in the Champions League. I think he actually got a record. If, it wasn't, if he didn't get the record, he equaled the record for the most number of consecutive Champions League games uh, that he scored. I think it was seven games, six or seven games, you know, I think all the group stage games and maybe... Uh, the first game in the knockout round as well. So he's an interesting player and I'd agree with that. That's a good way of looking at it. He does kind of symbolise this Porto in if you're going to get a result against us, you're going to have to work really hard because I'm going to make your life horrible. (laughs) There's always so many good players coming through. I know the last few years, Portugal have had great underage squads again. Anyone coming through at any of the teams in the league this season that has particularly impressed you? Uh... I'd say fewer than uh, in, you know, in recent times. You know, you could normally, almost every season, like you say, you could normally just reel off six or seven or eight names so you, you know, almost bang on, uh, you know, you'd expect to, you know, to, to really make a splash. It doesn't happen quite so often. Some of the best ones actually at Porto, but again, talking about Sergio Conceição, he doesn't really seem to to trust the youth that much. Uh, you know, they've got a very good centre-back, Diogo Leite, and they've got a very good right-back, Thomas Estevez, and they've hardly played any of those two teams in, in the first team. think maybe not such a young player, but if you ask me of one player who I think could make a step up and could perhaps, uh, you know, do well in a, in a big league like, you know, in Spain or in England or in Italy, I'd actually go for someone like uh, Rafa Silva of Benfica you know the winger is not so young anymore I think he must be about 26 27 but uh, you know lightning fast winger again a player who's really come on leaps and bounds especially last couple of seasons he was always a player who had all the assets to be really a top player top winger Uh, always seemed to cause absolute habit for the opposition but his decision making and his final execution were Pretty terrible, to be honest. He'd get himself, because of his speed and his trickery and his skill, he'd create about five or six, well, maybe five or six, that's an exaggeration, but maybe two or three really good chances for him every game, and then he'd miss them all. And then something happened, under again, under Bruno Lage. Uh, I don't know 
uh, some people have asked Bruno Lage this, well, what did you do? What did you say to Rafa? You know, how did you kind of uh, just mentally, I suppose, prepare him better? And he just turned into the kind of old-eyed assassin would be a bit more, <laughs> be a bit of an exaggeration, but he just absolutely transformed him. And he just, uh, you know, instead of maybe scoring one out of every 10 chances, he'd score like eight out of every 10 chances. He just scored goal after goal after goal. Uh, created loads of assists and uh, you know because everyone knew he was a top player he was just missing that final piece in his game so I think he's one who could if you ask me one player who could you know really make a splash abroad I think I'd say uh, Rafa Silva And Porto have done the double over Benfica this season and obviously a point clear at the moment um, have they improved greatly on, on previous seasons if they get over the line worthy champions? Uh, Porto. Uh, well, if I'm always a believer that you know whoever finishes up at the end of a 34-game season at the top of the at the top of the league, they're worthy champions. I think, uh, despite all these, we won't get into the never-ending controversies in Portugal about uh, you know refereeing decisions or whatever. But uh, yeah, you know, I mean, beating Benfica twice—that's uh, you know that takes some doing to start with. Like we were just mentioning, Benfica have been on this really rocky run of form, and Porto actually broke down their form as well. The last before the before the lockdown in the league, they'd won seven, drawn one of the last eight matches. Actually, the last match they drew uh, at home to Rio Ave, uh, one of the better sides in Portugal, though, at home. But So they've been on a good run of form in terms of results. I'd say in terms of results because that they haven't been winning convincingly, you know, they haven't been winning easily, but they've been getting over the line. And so maybe, you know, that kind of resolve three points above all else uh, may stand them in good stead. And before we resume in Portugal, like, is there a fear of rustiness? Is there a sort of an understanding or an awareness that it may not quite be the level that we left them at in March off the evidence of what we've seen from other countries so far? Perhaps, yeah. I think every, I think it's just an open question. You know, well, People really don't know, isn't there? There's so many unknowns in this situation. Uh, you know, no crowds. How would that affect people? The Portuguese league, I'd say, the one of the biggest strengths, which is simultaneously one of the biggest weaknesses in the Portuguese league, is there is a massive difference between the top clubs and everyone else. I'm talking about basically the big three, which is Sporting Benfica and Porto, and then maybe you can say Braga and Guimarães a little bit smaller, and then everyone else. You know really really small club uh, in comparison in terms of resources and so obviously especially when they're playing at home the big clubs that makes a massive difference because you've got 50,000 people literally a couple of dozen people away supporters so basically you know the whole stadium is willing one result and that puts a lot of pressure on the referees of course and uh, you know there's no doubt that must have an effect and even when the big clubs play away uh, most stadiums they go to, their fans will be in the majority, even when they're playing away. And so it's going to be interesting to see with no fans at all, uh, you know, what effect that has. Perhaps we'll see some surprise results. You know, it's quite often, uh, I think Mark just mentioned it earlier, these big clubs just go on incredible runs like Benfica, 19 games, lost one, won 18. You know, that would be amazing in any country. In Portugal, yeah, it's pretty impressive, but not unheard of you know that does happen uh, on quite a regular basis and so uh, it's going to be interesting to see you know especially if I suppose you could say a more level playing field if that will have an effect on the results in terms of the injuries uh, of course we've had a, a few examples haven't we from 
from Germany that uh, you know a few injuries have, have popped up already. Uh, perhaps players you know they haven't had a full pre-season. There's a lot of uncertainty, even psychologically, it must be quite difficult for them. Let's see if that affects uh, people. Actually, Porto, unfortunately for them, have had quite an important injury already in training. Their centre back Marcano, Spanish centre back, has been very. He's had a very good season. Uh, he's got a bad injury, so he's out for the rest of the season. Question of uh, wait and see. Uh, well, you know, in some ways, it's you know, it's interesting because it's so different, isn't it? It's uh, everything's different. And so you know, people are as well as being football starved, having no football to watch the last uh, two or three months. It's going to be, uh, you know, just it's going to be very interesting watching football in Portugal and like it's never been before. Do you feel like the players are willing to come back? Because, you know, in May, like me in May, I think Danilo Pereira uh, was uh, doubtful about the protocol in place, come back and, and play. What's, you know, the view from the players? Like, you know, it's, uh, they're, they're quite confident uh, that players will be looked after and... Uh, because we've seen in Germany, uh, you know, a lot of muscular injuries, but also uh, players have been tested positive. And uh, we had, you know, a few cases in, uh, in May as well in, in Portugal. And can you tell us, you know, a little bit more about it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There was actually shortly after it was officially announced that football would be coming back. There was, I think, the first Sunday afterwards, there was a whole series of, uh, of events and news which made, which suddenly threw everything into confusion and thought, well, maybe this won't happen because... 10 players or staff across four different clubs tested positive. This is about two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, tested positive for COVID-19. And so they obviously had to go into isolation. And that was the very same day that news came out of exactly what you just mentioned there, of uh, Daniel Pereira. He was the most high profile one, but also Tiquinho Suarez, uh, sporting player also uh, uh, there was four or five players who expressed their you know their doubts about this protocol and uh, you know one or two misgivings uh, I think about that I think that was a bit more kind of on the bureaucratic side more about the way it was worded from if I understood rightly they there was something written like uh, players accept their responsibility should something go wrong you know in other words if someone get affected or the families get affected they accept that, that they are responsible uh you know for for what has happened and they were saying oh, you know i hang about a minute we're almost being obliged to play football you know we can't accept full responsibility for you know for what happens and so one or two misgivings but i think the general feeling even i think even those players they were just they weren't really very happy with the way it was worded i think it was a bit clumsy the way that was put together and it was also done very fast of course because they they had to get this protocol written and delivered to the government in a couple of days or something so it seems that that wasn't done very thoughtfully but i think uh, i think on the whole i think most players look you know they're professional footballers aren't they and i think like the rest of us they want to try get back to something like normal life and uh you know this is quite apart from all the normal considerations of uh you know trying to uh, to prolong or to better their careers and like you know portugal is a bit of a uh, a stepping stone especially for these top players and they're always looking for perhaps a chance to impress and move on to uh you know a bigger league a better league daniel Pereira was certainly feeling fit into that category so i think on the whole yeah uh, the players are looking forward to it i'd certainly say there's far more people 
who are pro uh, coming back. Actually, the, against football, I haven't really heard anyone, uh, you know, strongly come out and say, no, you know, this is a bad idea. Football should not be played. I haven't, to be fair, I haven't heard anyone say that. Yeah, because we've seen Charlton, like, for example, you know, three players refused mm. to, to play already, like, you know, and uh, so yeah. it's not going to happen in Portugal, which is good news for the clubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, also in, that's right, in England, isn't it? There's been a few players as well who've expressed, you know, strong misgivings about it. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, in, in, in Portugal, you know, everyone's looking forward. Obviously, there's this protocol has been, although we, there were those problems with the way it was worded, it has been, uh, you know, some very strict rules in place. I think all the players have to be tested, I think, at least once, perhaps twice a week, uh, every week. And then, immediately before the games or immediately after or perhaps both but there's you know a whole lot of testing is going to go on obviously all the the rules concerning hygiene and, and distance and like I mentioned earlier you know even limiting the number of people who are allowed into the into the stadium so you know it's obviously been very you know as a high profile part of society they I think everyone even the government wants to make sure that it uh, things go well and so yeah we're I think we're all set Okay, and before we let you go, Tom, by the way, I mean, what about Jorge Jesus? An amazing job being done at Flamengo and voted their best coach ever, Libertadores winner, and such an unusual move to go from Portugal to Brazil when usually the talent goes in the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a fantastic coach, fantastic coach, Jorge. So it's really pleased that he's getting international recognition because he'd done amazing work here in Portugal but it was in Portugal so he wasn't really that well known outside of Portugal or not as well known as I think his abilities as a coach you know merits and so yeah it's been fantastic and you're absolutely right it's very unusual for Portuguese coaches to go there full stop and uh, you know just to to do what he did Uh, I think Flamengo was at 82 or something since Zico side they hadn't won the they hadn't won the Libertadores and, uh, you know, he did, did the double over there and yeah, getting that recognition from the fans. And uh, it's quite funny seeing his press conferences because even in Portugal, I think people here in Portugal do recognise as a great coach, but he's very arrogant. If you think that Mourinho is arrogant, you should hear George Jesus. He thinks he's the, the best coach in the world and he does, he's not afraid of saying that time and time again. So I'm not sure how, you know, it's a good thing that Brazil is a massive country. <laughs> <laughs> he can, uh, his head won't will be big enough to be in there but uh, yeah you know fair play to him is a he's done great and also it's had a very good effect in terms of raising the profile of Portuguese coaches in Brazil since the end of last season I think four or five Portuguese coaches have been hired by Brazilian clubs of course uh, the life of a Brazilian coach I think is even more volatile than over here in Europe and I think since uh, two or three of them have already been sacked so <laughs> so it's uh, kind of swings and roundabouts but yeah you know he's, he's, he's doing great and uh, I think he's 66 now but he's got plenty of energy and who knows you know he's always said it's his ambition to take over a club here in Europe one of the very big clubs so he can have a shot at winning the Champions League so maybe if someone goes out on a limb uh, that would be quite something to see. Portuguese coaches, it's a very interesting uh, case, especially in Europe, because you can see a lot of Portuguese uh, going abroad and uh, in England, especially in England. What is the reason behind it? Because I heard, like, you know, I've been told anyway that you syndicate in Portugal to promote, you know, Portuguese coaches across, you know, the world, basically. And yeah. uh, do you think that's definitely a huge influence about, you know, clubs, you know, appointing coaches from Portugal than Italy or Spain or, or France, for example? And, uh, 
is it true like you know that syndicate is very powerful so yeah i think also there's a good spirit this you know the the union or this the, the portuguese uh, coaches uh, syndicate uh, that they create this good kind of atmosphere whereby the, the, the coaches tend to, to help each other and promote each other. And of course, we cannot possibly talk about Portuguese coaches without you know, mentioning the role of Jose Mourinho. You know, he was, love him or hate him, he was just incredibly successful and very different, I think. And I think that he and his ability to adapt, especially, you know, in different, you know, being a success in four different countries that opened a lot of doors without a doubt, you know, a lot of people were looking for the next Mourinho. And so, and a lot of, almost all these, it's interesting if you look at some of these young Portuguese coaches doing very well, like Paulo Fonseca in, in Roma, for instance, Andre Villas-Boas, of course, was Mourinho's assistant for a long time. Uh, even Nuno Espirito Santo in, in England, all of them, they just speak really highly of Mourinho. You know, they, it's like the, you know, the person who really uh, inspired them and uh, and there's no doubt about it he made a, a huge contribution to raising the profile of Portuguese coaches there's also something which we cannot ignore uh, perhaps not so romantic or not so the fact that the most powerful agent in the world of course uh, George Mendes is Portuguese and so there's no doubt about it that opens the doors to a lot of clubs for Portuguese coaches where perhaps they wouldn't open otherwise uh, for instance, I think even Nuno Espirito Santo and fair play to him, he's done absolutely fantastic at, at Wolves. He's, uh, he's shown that he deserves to have that job. But I do feel that perhaps, and even before that at Valencia, if it wasn't for the fact that he was so in cohorts with George Mendes, he was actually the very first player George Mendes had. Uh, and they're, you know, they're great friends. And if it wasn't for that fact, perhaps he wouldn't have got those opportunities. So those two things come together. I think uh, also in Portugal, in general, it's the same really with coaches and players. They're very adaptable. Of course, you know this, uh, just in society in general, Portuguese people, they tend to have little trouble adapting to new surroundings and, uh, you know, uh, little things, well, little things, perhaps it's not so little in terms of language, you know, their grasp of language. If you look at uh, most of the Portuguese coaches, no matter what country they're in, uh, they tend to speak the, the language uh, at a very proficient level, you know, very quickly sometimes, in some cases, even before they start working there or living there. And so I think all those things come together and also uh, confidence, of course. Uh, Portuguese coaches must have a lot of confidence in, in themselves. Uh, it's kind of success breeds success. I think all, all those different factors come together. It was very interesting here in Arsene Wenger. I heard an interview with him the other day about Andre Villas-Boas, of course, who's doing so well at Marseille. And he was saying, there's no doubt about it, Andre Villas-Boas is an excellent coach, but I've got the feeling that there are perhaps French coaches who are at the same level as him, but they don't get the opportunity. And he mentioned George Mendes because they don't have such a powerful agent as George Mendes. So I think you have to say those are all factors behind it. Yeah, that was my last question about Jorge Mendes. Obviously, the most powerful agent uh, with Mino Raiola and mm. Pizza Heavy as well. But he attracts, you know, the best, you know, players and coaches, obviously, with him. And uh, again, getting into quite controversial territory here, and it depends who you speak to. Because, for instance, the uh, a lot of people insist that who uh, the the players selected by Fernando Santos, the Portugal coach, uh, have to kind of. Uh, get the approval of George Mendes or quite often when there's two players who seem to be in a quite similar position, 
One is a George Mendes player. The other one isn't. It always seems to be the George Mendes player who's called up to the national team. And so people, uh, a lot of people say, yes, he's too powerful. You know, he does call the shots. Other people and he himself, they say, no, this is just jealousy. You know, he's got to where he has done because he's self-made, you know, self-made millionaire. He's, he's done it all through hard work. He says uh, he himself talks a lot about uh, if when I get a player, I'll make 50 phone calls, 100 phone calls, 1,000 phone calls if I need to, to make sure that player goes to, you know, uh, progresses in his career. And so it depends whether or not it's beneficial or not for Portuguese football. That's an argument which will run or run. But there's no doubt about it. He does have a, a huge influence in Portugal in, uh, in many ways. And it's interesting also the way he kind of buys into clubs. This is kind of a tactic of his, like, of course, in Wolves, whereas he, he has no official position there. But, uh, you know, everyone knows that he has a very, uh, you know, kind of the doors are open if Wolves would like to get a Portuguese player. And just look what's happened there, isn't it? I think it's seven, is it? Seven or eight players in their squad. We had the same thing at Valencia when, again, Nuno Espirito Santo was the head coach. Here in Portugal, we've got a smaller club now called Familical, who have uh, are very much in cahoots with uh, Jorge Mendes, and they're doing very well, punching above their weight, slightly, using a slightly different tactic, getting players on loan, mainly very high-quality players, who will just stay for a year. And then, of course, that benefits them because they have a strong team. It also benefits George Mendes because then these players, their value increases and they get sold and he'll get a bigger commission. Don't really want to get too controversial and say if he is, uh, you know, if, if his methods are all completely above board. On the other hand, I think you have to give him credit because he's shown that he is good at what he does. You know, the club knows what it what it's getting into. Sure, when you give George, en- George Mendes such a big say in who comes in and who comes out of that club, uh, you've got advantages and disadvantages. And so if things go wrong, should that should George Mendes be blamed for that or should the club be blamed for that for, uh, you know, getting involved? And for, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you ask 100 Wolves fans if they think George Mendes is a good influence or bad influence, about 99 of them would say <laughs> he's a good, very good influence. You know, I think that's more a question of maybe the way football is set up, the way football is run, rather than you know, if it's the correct way to do things. In an ideal world, of course, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't have one agent who is so powerful. You know, it'd be more equally set up even to kind of uh, avoid any possible conflicts of interest. But, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. Tom, nine years ago in Dublin, we had Porto and Braga playing the Europa League final. That was the second Europa League title for Porto in eight years. They won Champions League in 2004. Then we had Jorge Jesus guiding his Benfica to two, I think, two consecutive Europa yeah, League finals. That's right. This season, I look around, I don't see any Portuguese club in Europe anymore. So would that yeah. be the new Bella Goodman's course for Portuguese clubs? And it's across <laughs> the group stage to get into uh, last eight or whatever. What has happened? Yeah, yeah, it's a fair question. Of course, Portuguese clubs did so well over such a long period of time, and especially that period you talked to, you know, of course, Porto champions, Champions League champions, Europa League champions, UEFA League champions, uh, like you mentioned, Benfica getting there twice, Braga getting to the final, even Sporting getting to the final. And I, yeah, I remember being in Dublin for that match. It was really quite, uh, for me, it was quite an emotional occasion. Two Portuguese clubs, uh, you know, it wasn't the Champions League, of course, but even so, two Portuguese clubs competing in the final of a major European competition. 
but you're absolutely right. The, the the results have been getting worse and worse. And I think, you know, even though I'm a huge proponent or a huge kind of encourager of Portuguese football, I don't walk around with my eyes closed. And there's no doubt about it. The level, the quality of Portuguese football in the last few years has gone down quite drastically. Uh, why is that? I think there's a few reasons. I think uh, one of the main reasons is, for instance, most of these great Porto sides and even Benfica sides, they were built on basically buying in very talented, perhaps not quite so well-known, South Americans especially, Brazilians, uh, Argentinians. Those players would uh, be guaranteed Champions League football, so it's attractive for them to come in. It was obviously great for Porto and for, for the club involved because you had players like Di Maria or Benfica. Uh, you had players like Hulk. You had players like, uh, you know, James Rodriguez. You had just fantastic world-class talents coming to Portugal when they were very young, honing their talents there. Uh, the top Portuguese clubs getting the benefits of that. Then they'd be sold for a huge price. Portuguese clubs would make a big profit. Everyone was a winner. You know, the players would be moving on to a much bigger club. Portuguese clubs were able to do that, I think, for two reasons. First of all, they had a very good scouting network. And, of course, in Brazil, they had the advantage of the, the language, of course, and the cultural ties. Uh, I think that's not such the case that the, 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 the quality of their scouting network now is not too uh, different to the others. Or, put it another way, I think the rest of Europe has caught up and they've got, uh, obviously, more financial resources than Portuguese clubs and they've kind of got their act together. And now most of these really strong uh, young Brazilian players, young South American players uh, who have very high potential, they just don't come to Portugal now. They go straight to England or to Spain or to Italy. Also, the end of third-party ownership, that hit Portugal hard because that was one reason which enabled Portuguese clubs to be able to attract these players because they'd, you know, just buy 30% of them or 40% of them or 50% of them because they wouldn't be able to buy, uh, you know, they, they didn't have the financial resources to, to buy the player outright. When that was outlawed, you know, third-party ownership, that came to an end, that hit Portugal hard. Other reasons, I think uh, the Portuguese football itself isn't in such a good state in terms of its domestic football because the arguing and the bickering and the constant accusations of corruption have really kind of deteriorated to such an extent that uh, I think just some players, maybe players, just... Uh, that they look to get out. <laughs> they look to get out, especially the best players. They look to get out as soon as possible because it's just not a very nice atmosphere to play football in a lot of the times. Uh, I think that's also that's a, a factor which I think is becoming, unfortunately. You know, people keep saying we need a kind of root and branch change of Portuguese football. They need to get rid of all the current presidents. They need to get a whole lot of new ones in, but very slow for things like that to change. So I think those are, are three reasons, uh, three big reasons for maybe why... Uh, Portuguese clubs aren't doing so well in Europe as they, they have been in the quite recent past. And, and also, of course, the obvious, I suppose the most obvious reason is just the gap in the financial disparity uh, between Portuguese clubs and the top leagues is just getting wider and wider. I mean, we, we saw this, don't we? We see this of every country in Europe who doesn't belong to those top four or five leagues. Portugal were a bit of an outlier because they're um, they had a higher quality but the same kind of resources or potential as maybe you know, Austrian League or Dutch League or leagues like that but they seem to do so much better but nowadays I think they've kind of regressed into that group again now you definitely have you just can't see anyone winning the Champions League can you who doesn't belong to 
England, Spain, Italy, or Germany. You can't see it, perhaps France. Uh, well, France and PSG, obviously, but uh, you just can't see a club, a Portuguese club, winning a league nowadays. Just it's one of the unfortunate things of modern football. I think the gap between Portuguese football or leagues at a level of Portuguese football and the very top leagues is just too too big to bridge nowadays. Tom, it was great to have you on. I think that was your doorbell. Um, <laughs> ju- just in a word, the cruelest question of all, Porto or Benfica then for the title, do you reckon? Or is that too <laughs> awkward a question? Uh, I'll go for Porto. I think Porto one point ahead and I wouldn't be surprised if that's what it is at the end of the season. I think it's going to go right to the, the end, but I think they might just scrape it this season. Nice one, Tom. Thanks very much. And I do hope you get to see some football in person soon. Okay, thank you very much. So that's it for now. Thanks very much to Tom Kundert of Portugal.net. As usual, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe. It helps us a lot. And until next time, from Mark Rodden, Stefan Johnny, Dimitri July, and me, Will Downing, it's goodbye. Look after yourselves. <laughs>